and are in Genesis chapter 40. Throughout my youth ministry career, I've been a youth pastor for about 16 years. And I've had the chance to talk to a lot of different youth pastors, a lot of different contexts, situations. And I've had the chance to pass on some uh, hard-earned wisdom, um, maybe not always helpful, but at least I was able to give some input and shape maybe some of of the men and women uh, starting in youth ministry careers. I had heard at one point that the average stay of a youth pastor at the church was either 18 months, somewhere between 18 months and two years. And that is kind of a depressing statistic. Um, because you know for all the people that have lasted 8 to 10 years, there were a lot of people that didn't even make a one-year mark. And so I know the pressures especially around here where it's hard to afford housing uh, for youth pastors to stay. And, and uh, so I, I kind of took that on as a kind of a side ministry to try to encourage uh, youth pastors, uh, especially ones that were just starting out, coming out of college, thinking that I'm in full-time ministry. What could go wrong? And uh, I remember specifically talking to two youth pastors in, in sort of a, similar time frame, and they, had, they were both sort of young and new, and they were both dealing with a good bit of discouragement at their individual churches. Um, they hadn't been there long. Things were not as easy as they thought it'd be. The, the honeymoon period has sort of worn off. Uh, they were, uh, there was criticism. They both were wondering what they should do. And I remember... I remember thinking through their situations and formulating my response. And to the first guy, I said, listen, I think you need to stay where you are. I think you need to gut it out. I think you need to learn to work through conflict because that is part of ministry. That's never going to go away. Uh, you, your pastor and you, it sounds like you need to work through some things. And you need to probably meet with some parents and talk about expectations. And, but if you don't learn how to handle conflict and criticism now, if you just jump to a different church, it's going to be there waiting for you to see how you're going to uh, work through it there. And you can't bail at the first sign of trouble. I think, I think you should just stick with it. And he did. And it was exciting to see him minister for many years. The second guy I talked to was a little different situation, though. And I remember counseling. I, I don't think I said it exactly like this, but the main message was, if I were you, I'd be dusting off that resume like tonight. Um, you know, I've only heard your side of the story, so that's a little dangerous. Um, but if it were me, I'm just reading between the lines here. It sounds like your church lied to you when they brought you on. Your theology is very different from your, the church staff and leaders. And I think they think that they made a mistake. And I think that pastor is looking for anything he needs to fire you. And I hoped I was wrong, and I, you know, I qualified it in a number of different ways, but I remember uh, not, not long after his, his pastor did sort of, I remember getting the call. Yeah, he called me in and said, either quit or I'm firing you. And that was hard to hear. 
Now, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, and I don't always read situations well. But I was just reminded of this as I went through this text, and I remind, I'm reminded that we all have a chance to speak into people's lives, to help shape them, to give them advice. Wherever you are, whatever line of work you're in, wherever you go to school, whoever your neighbors are, parents, teachers, friends, whatever, whatever role you have, you have a great opportunity to guide and to exhort. Today's passage in Genesis sees Joseph doing just that. He's bottomed out, really the, the lowest point of his life. And yet he's willing to reach out and give advice to two men who are very scared about their futures. Now Joseph has been in Egypt now for about a decade. He's been separated from his family, which I think was good and bad. I'm sure he misses his dad. He was the favored son, but then again, he's got 11 sons who took the option of selling him into slavery as the more merciful option over killing him. So maybe being separated from those guys for a time wasn't too bad. But Joseph's been taken from one pit in Canaan to another pit here in Egypt. And he's rotting away in Pharaoh's prison with little hope of being released. But as we saw in last week's passage, the Lord was with him. And the Lord has given him favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison. And we see this theme throughout Joseph's life. First, he, he's run Potiphar's house. Potiphar was the man he was sold to, and he just gave, turned everything over to him. And now the, the man in prison, the keeper of the prison, said, you take over. And eventually we know he'll be heading to leadership in Egypt as Pharaoh's right-hand man. There is, there is something about this man. He just does a great job wherever he is. And, and people are compelled to just turn things over to him, to entrust him as their second in command. So let's take that background into Genesis chapter 40. Knowing that Joseph here is in prison. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me 
to, tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now what had these men done to anger Pharaoh? The text doesn't say exactly. Just that they had committed some offense that made Pharaoh angry enough to put them in prison. Perhaps it was as innocuous as, as just committing a social faux pas. You know, they said the wrong thing, talked to the wrong person. Maybe they performed their duties poorly. Pharaoh was angry. Uh, some commentators suggested that something more insidious. Uh, what positions would be more necessary for a plot to poison Pharaoh than his cupbearer and his baker? Maybe they were involved in something like that. Uh, whatever their offenses were, though, it, it doesn't sound like they got much due process of law, just as Joseph hadn't. If you made Pharaoh angry, he did what he wanted. He was judge, jury, and executioner. And I think one of the other things we need to address with this passage, before we get too deeply into it, is is what some people may be thinking as they read through it. Does God use dreams to guide his people often? I mean, God seems to be leading Joseph, using his dreams, others' dreams. We've already seen his dreams when he was a teenager that alienated his brothers and angered them. And now we have these dreams of these men 
And later we'll see Pharaoh's dreams and Joseph's interpretation of them. And we see dreams in the book of Daniel. And in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, there's all kinds of dreams. So, I think it's natural to say, should I be paying attention to my dreams so that I know what God's trying to tell me? This week, I had a dream that I was in the dugout of Yankee Stadium, (laughs) spitting sunflower seeds with Jeter and A-Rod. I'm serious, that was my dream on like Tuesday or Wednesday night. I'm not a Yankees fan either. I'm a lifelong Pirates fan. I married into the Red Sox. I don't know where that came from. Maybe God gave it to me. I mean, maybe I need to just switch allegiances. No, that's probably not it. But maybe it's something more spiritual. Maybe we need to take a mission trip to New York City. Maybe I need to become a chaplain to a sports team. God must be telling me something in this dream. Our dreams, a key area of spiritual understanding that our churches just have downplayed and we should be investigating more seriously. Well, the short answer is I don't think so. Um, let me take one ver- two verses, the first two verses of the book of Hebrews. It's in your outline. Um, Verses 1 and 2a, long ago, at many times and in many ways, emphasis there are many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And I think the culmination of the New Testament teaching, the scriptural teaching is that I don't think we need prophecies or dreams today because we have the perfect scriptures that tell the gospel of the son god has spoken through his son the definitive word i'm not saying that god can't i don't want to limit god and say he can't send a dream to tell you that something's going to happen but i certainly don't think it's his usual means of communicating with us and i don't think it's necessary Because we have the Scriptures in their complete form. In the past, God gave supernatural, we call signs, wonders. Because people didn't have the Scriptures to guide them. And there's even a a larger teaching and conversation we could have at this point about making decisions through God's revealed will in the Scriptures And not waiting around to have specific decisions about your life revealed to you. What class should I sign up for next semester? What college should I go to? Who should I marry? What job should I take? I mean, those aren't in the Scriptures, right? That very specific will for God that God has for our lives. But again, I don't think we need to sit around and wait for God to reveal those things. I, I would recommend to you a book I, we worked through with the college small group last summer. It's by Kevin DeYoung. Just Do Something is what it's called. A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. Uh, and he said the, kind of the alternate subtitle or 
how to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. It's all there on the front cover. The basic premise is that if you understand the Scriptures and you are following God's moral law for your life and trying to glorify Him by using your gifts and talents for His kingdom, then you will make choices based on those things and end up where God wants you. Let me, let me give just a quote from the book. It just summarizes it well. Obsessing over the future is not how God wants us to live because showing us the future is not God's way. His way is to speak to us in the Scriptures and transform us by the renewing of our minds. His way is not the crystal ball. His way is wisdom. We should stop looking for God to reveal the future to us and remove all risk from our lives. And we should start looking to God, His character and His promises, and thereby have confidence to take risks for His name's sake. So back to Joseph. I've cleared that up or maybe brought up more questions. Think that through. I felt like we needed to at least address that. But as we get back to Joseph and the dreams of the two men, at a time when God did use these dreams to reveal His will in the future. Let's read again verses 9 through 13. And then we're going to skip and read verses 16 through 19. I realize they're not numbered in your outline, but Follow with me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. And then skip a couple verses to the baker. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. So Joseph hears both of these men's dreams. Both men, it says, that they, are, they were terrified. Because they, they know somehow that the dreams are supernatural. And that they have some important meaning for their future, but they can't figure them out. And they assume that there's nobody there who can. But Joseph, who's had a little bit of experience with dreams, and he may have had a lot more in the intervening years, I don't know, but he's got this confidence that God is going to reveal it to him. Of course, crediting God that God is the interpreter of dreams. But tell me, and I'll, I'll let you know what God says. 
Now the cupbearer who dreamed of a vine and of crushing grapes into Pharaoh's cup is told that he will be restored to his job in three days. But the baker who dreamed of birds eating the food from the baskets on his head is told that he will be hanged in three days. And if you read closely, you saw that actually they had the same interpretation, the same judgment given. Uh, and maybe if you have a different translation, we found out in Sunday school, it may not say it exactly. But in the ESV, Joseph tells both of them, Pharaoh will lift up your head, right? And for the cupbearer, lifting that up means re restoring him to his office. For the baker, your head will be lifted up from you, lifted up above all of us as you hang. And as much as the baker hopes that he's wrong, Joseph is exactly right. And the whole chapter and passage ends with Joseph being forgotten. We find out in the next chapter that, that two more years go by before Joseph is noticed. And if we think back in between the two dreams, you can find again verses 14 and 15, Joseph requested something of the cupbearer. He said, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Joseph's being honest. I'm, I need to get out of here. But the cupbearer, he leaves and he's celebrating. I mean, he's back in the service of the king. Back working full time. He's too busy. He forgets Joseph. And a lot of commentators really focused on this kind of ending that Joseph is left forgotten in prison. And just bringing this forward that, oh man, he looks like he's coming out, but God's going to keep him there for a couple more years to refine his character maybe, to test him. He's not ready to bring him out yet. But I also see this as a very hopeful point and sort of the turning point in Joseph's life because the seed is now sown that we're going to find out grows up and, and is what causes Joseph's ascension. And throughout, we do see God sovereignly moving the action along. As, as Dr. David noted in the sermon at the beginning of Joseph's life, that when he told his dream to his brothers, the very telling of it set in motion the actions that would eventually lead to its fulfillment. And each step of Joseph's journey seems to be refining his character and his patience while setting him up to eventually be second in command in Egypt. And the man who would save many lives, including his family, this whole nation of Israel. Now, as we've noted in previous sermons as well, there are striking parallels between Joseph's life and Jesus' life. And this chapter certainly has a parallel as well. Just as Joseph, who was completely innocent, 
had been thrown into prison. So Jesus, at the end of his life, is falsely accused and unjustly condemned. And hanging on the cross, Jesus has two criminals hanging next to him. Luke's Gospel records that one of the men taunts Jesus because of the sign above his head that read, King of the Jews. Remember, he says, if you're a king, get us down. But the other thief hanging next to Jesus refuses to join in those taunts and recognizes that Jesus has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and asks for mercy. Remember me, he says. And Jesus grants it, saying, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two men, both condemned for crimes that they've committed, but one, like the cupbearer, is given the sentence of life from Jesus' own mouth, and the other, like the baker, is left to his sentence of eternal death. Nancy Guthrie writes, just as Joseph was the means of blessing to one companion, but the pronouncer of judgment to the other, so Jesus gave life to the repentant thief while the other thief perished. Now I said in the beginning of the sermon that we get to speak into people's lives uh, giving advice. But deeper than that, we have a bit of a prophetic role also to play in other people's lives. Not that we are interpreting dreams, not prophetic in the sense of prophesying the future, but the meaning of prophecy as foretelling. We are tasked in the New Testament, we are told that we are to tell people that they will either spend eternity with God if they find life in Christ, or they will spend it apart from God if they die in their sins without Christ's sacrificial death covering those sins. You see, everybody has a spiritual worldview, a, a dream, if you will, about how life works and how they think they'll get to heaven, how they justify how they live. Or maybe they dismiss the, out, the afterlife outright. And we, like Joseph, often have opportunities to speak to those people explaining why they are anxious about those worldviews. We know that they're built on false foundations. And we bring the words of life and death to people when we fulfill our roles of being Christ's ambassadors. We have the ministry of reconciliation, Paul says. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, also in your outline, says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. 
I didn't understand that the first time I read it. But I get it now. To some people, we'll, have, we'll give a message of hope. They'll hear it. And it will be an aroma of salvation that will save them. Through God working in their lives. To others, that same message will be repugnant. They'll reject it. And they'll stay condemned. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we as honest as Joseph when he gave the good and bad interpretations of the dreams? Do we bring both parts of the gospel to people? I mean, we have bad news. The wages of sin is death. But we have great good news. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And I'm guessing it would have been very easy for Joseph to give the cupbearer his good interpretation. Hey, congratulations. You're heading back up. Out of prison. And then turn to the baker and listen to his dream and say, I'm sorry, I'm not sure what that dream means. Good luck with you. Because he didn't, just didn't want to give the bad news. But Joseph was faithful. Jo Joseph told the truth. And we're called to do the same. To give both a picture of the justice and wrath of a holy God and the love, grace, and forgiveness of that same holy God. If you've heard of the magic comedy team, Penn and Teller, one half of that is, the man's name is Penn Gillette. And uh, there's a YouTube clip uh, that's called, Penn Jillette Gets the Gift of a Bible. In which he talks about, after one of his shows, he's meeting people, and a businessman came up to him and handed him a Bible. And he told him to his face, I am proselytizing you. I'm, I'm witnessing, evangelizing you. And Penn is an atheist. And so you think, you would assume that he would react with anger and offense, throw the Bible back in his face. I don't, I don't need this. But it's interesting if you watch this clip. Here's what he says. I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people be, could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? I'm, I'm just reading exactly what he said. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that eternal life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. I mean, that sounds like we went to a conference and the speaker was just slamming us, right? Go witness. Not at all. This is, this is an atheist saying, if you're convinced this is how this life works and spiritual things work, you've got to tell me. You've got to have the courage to tell me. And my point here is not to guilt you into witnessing to everybody you come in contact with, but to remind you to remind us, 
that it's not mean to tell people the gospel. It's offering them the greatest gift they could possibly receive. As, as Penn says, it's mean not to. And we are called to speak the truth in love and it, it will comfort some and sadden and offend others. Just like it did for Joseph. Just like it did for Jesus. We got to tell those who are lost and condemned around us that the king wants to pull them out of the prison of their sins. To forgive them, to lift up their heads. You know, the more I spent time with this passage, though, I realized I keep putting us in the Joseph role. I say, hey, go be Joseph, go, go tell. I think there's some good application that we have. But step back for a minute. Is that really who we are in this passage? We're not really Joseph in this story, are we? We're the cupbearer or the baker. And every analogy is not perfect. Let's, let's say that we are a guilty, treasonous, condemned version of the cupbearer. A man, we are enemies of the king who have earned and deserve our execution. And yet the king has decided out of the pure goodness of his heart to cancel our sentence of death and to grant us life. He will lift up our heads and restore us and speak life to us. And when we see that, when we see who we are in this passage, it should drive us to our knees in thanksgiving for what we've been forgiven of. And that we were once in prison, the prison of our sins, and the King released us from that. And all who rejoice in that life said, Amen. Father God, thank you for your most excellent scriptures. Thank you for our series in Genesis that has taught me so much. As my brother Mark admitted, and I often come to these passages and just don't know what to do with them, preaching, teaching them. And yet, as I read, as I dig, Lord, there is so much there. Lord, thank you that these were preserved for us, as all scriptures are, to train us in godliness. Lord, as we think of the prophetic work of Joseph, that found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Christ is the door. And He is the ultimate choice between life and death. God, give us the courage to share that with those around us. 
those who are in the prisons of their sins. Unsure of the future, they've come up with some worldview. They've latched on to something that helps them understand or, or explain away this life and sin and the afterlife. And yet, deep down, they doubt it. As Romans says, all men know the truth of God and they suppress it. So Lord, give us the courage to work through that and to give them the truth of life and death that your son died on the cross for their sins to restore them to life. God, we know that some will hear and some will reject. Some will be sentenced to eternal death like the baker and one thief on the cross was, and others will be brought to life through you. And Lord, even greater, I pray that we would see these scriptures and rejoice that we are ones called out of the darkness and into the light through your glorious grace that you chose us from the foundation of the world to be yours and you bring us out of the pit of our sins when we identify with the cupbearer who is restored to life and live a life of thanksgiving of serving the king 